Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we're going to be talking about delayed cord clamping. Waiting a few minutes to clamp a newborn's umbilical cord can have significant health benefits. And yet, the debate of early versus delayed cord clamping versus how long to clamp for rages on. What's the big deal? Dr. Mark Sloan is here to explain and share what the evidence says. Stay tuned. This episode of Birthflow is brought to you by Simply Breastfeeding, a prenatal breastfeeding course to help nursing parents feel confident with their newborns. Learn more at birthful.com slash simplybreastfeeding and use the code birthful for 15% off. This episode of Birthflow is also brought to you by Expectful, an evidence-based guided meditation app created specifically for those trying to conceive pregnant or new moms. Learn more and sign up for a free two-week trial at expectful.com slash birthful. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros and new parents to inform your intuition. Hello, Mighty Parents and Parents-to-be. Thank you, as always, for all the love you give the show. And if you like what you hear, then you know what to do. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a thing. To best support this podcast, please support its sponsors also, which in today's case are Simply Breastfeeding and Expectful. Also, pregnant people, if you've only prepared for the having a birth part and not so much for the having a baby part, then you're only halfway there. Why don't you let me help you make those first few weeks with your newborn so much easier? Go sign up for my Thrive With Your Newborn online postpartum preparation classes at birthfulcourses.com and then you can stop worrying that you won't know what to do to connect and to understand your baby and what to do when you take that baby home. Even though the class is set up for five weeks, you do get all the content right away. So you can really take it at your own pace and refer to it as many times as you want after the baby is born. Go sign up. Go do it at birthfulcourses.com. All right. So July is Cord Blood Awareness Month. And in today's renewed episode with Dr. Mark Sloan, we're going to be talking about delayed cord clamping. Since we did the recording originally, I have definitely seen a widespread change in protocol from immediate cord clamping, immediate like in 10 seconds or as soon as you can after that baby is born, towards delayed cord clamping. But what you can't see me doing is air quotes as I say delayed cord clamping because in January of 2017, the American College of Obstetricians and Obstetrics and Gynecology, along with the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American College of Nurse Midwives, put out a committee opinion bulletin that recommends waiting 30 seconds to a minute before clamping the cord. And many practices have started doing that and they are calling it delayed cord clamping. And then when a parent asks to delay the clamping of the cord, providers say they are doing the delayed cord clamping by waiting 30 seconds to a minute. Now, the thing is, I'm not sure that constitutes true delayed cord clamping as the evidence shows, since in many cases, the cord is still pulsating at that point. Blood is still being transferred at 30 seconds or a minute. And then parents think they're getting one thing when they're getting something else that is now being labeled as delayed cord clamping by their practice. So to understand how this time is actually those 32 seconds to a minute are so arbitrary, we've got that... You know, the like I just said, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, so ACOG, and the American Academy of Pediatrics and the College of Nurse Midwives say 30 seconds to a minute. 
But then the British Royal College of OBGYN recommends waiting for at least two minutes, while the American College of Nurse Midwives recommends two to five, and the World Health Organization says between one to three minutes, but no less than one. Right? So what do you do? So to be fair, though, 50% of the blood transfer happens between baby and placenta in that first minute. And then the remainder does happen over the following two to five minutes. So I do think it's fantastic that more and more protocol is stepping away from the immediate clamping and moving towards that one minute mark. I'm just proposing that we may not want to stop there, that that still might not be enough. So to clarify things with your provider, instead of asking them if they do delayed cord clamping, you may want to ask them the details about how much time they generally wait before clamping and then you can have a discussion with them and if and let them know if you'd like for them to wait longer than what they do that is definitely going to bring more clarity to the situation than you asking can we do delayed cord clamping and then them saying yes of course that's what we do and later finding out that you guys or you're both using different the different times or the same name for two slightly different but important practices okay so I have also gone ahead and updated the links on the show notes for this episode to include articles that have come out since I or- originally spoke with Dr. Sloan, along with that reviewed or revised committee opinion by ACOG and these other organizations. So a bit about Dr. Sloan before we jump into the show. He's been a pediatrician and fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics for more than 30 years and in 2015. He earned a master's in public health degree with a concentration in maternal child health. He's also the author of the book Birthday, a pediatrician explores the science, the history, and the wonder of childbirth. All right, here we go. Here's the show. Mark, welcome so much. Thank you, Adriana. Thanks for inviting me today. It's a pleasure to be here. So how did you become so interested in delayed cord clamping? What got you to this point? A lot of it had to do with just observing so many births over the years. Because as a pediatrician, I, I think I added I added it up once. I think it, I attended about twenty five hundred, three thousand births in the course of my career. And in the course of writing my book, though, uh, writing Birthday, I I came to question a lot of uh, the the things we do around uh, childbirth in the medical community, such as you know the rising rates of C sections and things. And it didn't make a lot of sense to me that this cord kept. Cord, you know, the cord kept uh, um, pulsating, and we were stopping some sort of process from going on. So I got interested in it at that point. And then uh, over the past decade, certainly the, the research is, is starting to show the benefits of, uh, of delayed cord clamping and some of the potential harms of early cord clamping. So really in the course of writing my book and, and kind of questioning what I'd been trained to do, uh, I got interested in the topic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and before we talk about delayed cord clamping... Can we talk a bit about the more widespread practice of early cord clamping, which is what you were referring to, and that even though the evidence is mounting, it's still done in many places. So when and did this early cord clamping begin? Well, it goes way back, uh, both early cord clamping and delayed cord clamping. Uh, you can go back to Aristotle in the 300 BCs, and he was critical of uh, cutting the cord too soon because he felt it made babies weaker. Um, most of the medical writers back through time were pro-delayed cord clamping. They, they, and But you could tell there was a lot of uh, early cord clamping being done by some uh, maternity care providers 
because the, there was much of the writing was critical of early cord clamping. So, for instance, if you jump ahead to the 18th century to Erasmus Darwin, who was uh, Charles Darwin's grandfather, he was a very successful uh, physician, and he was very much pro-delayed cord clamping. And this is a quote from him. He said, a thing very injurious to the child is the tying and cutting of the navel string or the umbilical cord too soon, as otherwise the child is much weaker than it ought to be. Um, interestingly, the first commercial cord clamp was produced in 1899, and the instructions simply said, apply clamp after cord pulsation ceased. So even with, with the introduction of cord clamps, the idea was that you were going to wait until the contractions in the, in the cord had stopped before applying them. But the big change came in the mid 20th century, and particularly in the 1960s, when there was an effort to decrease uh, maternal postpartum hemorrhage, which you know could be tragic. Um, the thought was to um, begin what was called active management of the third stage of labor. And there were three parts to that active management. Um, one was to give a mother something like Pitocin right after the baby was delivered to get the, the uh, uh, uterus to contract down. The early cord clamping was the second part of that, usually within 10 or 15 seconds of birth. And the final part was then they would put some traction on the cord. They'd pull on the cord gently as they were waiting for the placenta to come out, thinking that this might help prevent uh, postpartum hemorrhage. Well, it didn't turn out to prevent postpartum hemorrhage, but for no scientific reason at all, uh, I think just mainly out of medical habit, early cord clamping became the norm in the 1960s. And certainly when I was trained in medical school in the 70s and my residency in the 80s, we didn't give it a second thought. We just, you know, that's what you did. You know, whether it was a healthy baby, a sick baby, you just clamped the cord immediately at birth and away you went. So that's kind of where it came from. So as part of that active management of third state labor that it has certain, you know, like you mentioned, certain steps that involve, were involved in that active management. And over the years, those steps kind of separated in the into their own individual interventions and then the early curved clamping stuck around mm -hmm. yeah the, the early clamping was part of that triad of things to do to prevent postpartum hemorrhage and it's yeah it's, it's still there but again mm -hmm. I, think, I think it's more just habit than anything else i can't remember where it was i read within that active active management of third stage of labor that the early clamping was because it also helped to have the handle so the, you know be the cord for the traction being slippery the clamp gave him like some something to hold on to while trying to pull. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, and, and it would make sense because they, you know, if you, those of us who've felt a lot of umbilical cords, they are slippery things. It's pretty hard to get a grip on them. And I think probably too, the baby was just considered to be in the way when, when you're trying to prevent uh, maternal complications. So the best thing to do is to get the baby out of the way, use that clamp as a, as a handle and mm -hmm. do your cord traction or your traction on the cord, you know. So, yeah, needed as a handle. That's, it's not a medical reason at all. So this debate has been raging for hundreds of years, and we're talking about just a few minutes. So what is, can we define the difference between the timing in early cord clamping and, and delayed cord clamping? It's easier to define early cord clamping when you're looking at research studies, because I think the generally accepted uh, definition is to clamp the cord somewhere you know, before 10 to 15 seconds of age. And that includes cutting the cord prenatally, like for instance, a child with a nuchal cord, um, they'll clamp and cut the, the uh, cord frequently before the baby's actually born then. So I think the early cord clamping, usually it's pretty immediate, so like 10 to 15 seconds out. 
when you look at other studies, um, there's been varying definitions of delayed cord clamping. It can be anything from 30 to 60 seconds to a minute to two to three minutes to five minutes, depending on what's, what the study was looking at. And I think the, the, the accepted, I mean, if you look at the physiology of, of um, what goes on during birth with the, with the uh, transfusion of blood from the placenta back into the baby, most of that most of that blood flow is going to happen within three minutes. So I think currently the thought is, you know, delayed cord clamping really should be about two to three minutes. But again, some places look at it as one minute. So, and and so it's a little little murky in terms of how you define it. Mm-hmm. And and if you look at it, three minutes, five minutes, we're not talking about a long stretch of time at all. Right. We're not, <laughs> not talking, this isn't like finding a new way to transplant hearts. You know, this is. I mean, as medical interventions go, this is like really there's no money involved. There's no expense. There's no equipment involved. It's just sitting there and you know letting letting things happen for a couple extra minutes. Yeah, yeah. like take a breath and ask the mom how she's doing, and that minute went by. <laughs> well, some people are a little antsy, I guess. But... <laughs> right. Um, before we get into the benefits of delayed quick clamping, let's take a break, and we'll be right back. Breastfeeding, it may be natural, but that sure does not mean it's easy. It's a learning process for both you and baby, and like most learning processes, it takes a lot of trial and error. However, this trial and error can sometimes come with a lot of crying, and not necessarily only from your baby. Help lessen the crying and frustration by arming yourself with some solid knowledge. A great way to prepare for this is by taking the Simply Breastfeeding Online class created by breastfeeding experts Cindy and Jana. In their class, you'll learn to recognize what your baby is telling you and how to meet your baby's needs starting in the very first hour after birth. You'll also understand the basics of breastfeeding and be able to return to them if you encounter difficulties, and you'll feel confident knowing the answers to most frequently asked questions. Lessen your anxiety and frustration and relax knowing you've got this. Go to birthful.com slash simply breastfeeding to learn more. And as a Birthful listener, you get 15% off if you use the code BIRTHFUL when you register. Go to birthful.com slash simply breastfeeding or click the link on the show notes to get you on your way. And we're back. So what are the benefits? Um, the evidence has been mounting for delayed cord clamping. And I wish we had another terminal- terminology for it like normal cord clamping or instead of delayed because it implies that the immediate cord clamping is is the natural norm but anyway well that's really a hangover from you know when early cord clamping came into being it's like those who are in favor of delayed cord clamping have to justify why they are delaying things i've heard the term uh, physiologic cord clamping which at least makes more sense is that you're waiting for the body to clamp its own cord rather than you doing something to it Oh, I like that. Physiological cord clamping. Mm-hmm. It's harder to say, but yes, I like that better. I'll just I'll try to switch to that. So what are the benefits? Go ahead. Uh, the benefits of delayed cord clamping? Uh, well, it, it, I think it helps to back up and look at uh, some key differences in circulation and blood circulation in fetuses versus adults to begin with. Sure. Um, you and me and anybody who's older than a couple of minutes of age, really, about half of our total blood volume in our bodies, all the blood we have, about half of it at any one time is flowing through the lungs and the blood vessels of the lungs. And that just shows you how critically important it is for us to get oxygen, is that we're devoting so much of our blood flow to getting oxygen from the lungs. Well, in a, in a fetus, it wouldn't make any sense to be sending a lot of blood to the lungs because the fetus isn't breathing, there's no air there. 
And so um, if you think of the placenta as the fetal lung, which it really is, then it makes sense that 50%, that 50% of the blood that would go to our lungs goes to the uh, placenta and the fetus. So it's an odd thing to think about, but half the, in mid-pregnancy, half the baby's blood is actually not in his body. It's out in the placenta getting oxygen and bringing it back to the baby that route. Um, so what's supposed to happen during labor then is, uh, you know, if, if everything goes well, the, each of the uterine contractions, because after the baby's born and needs to be breathing oxygen, you want that blood available to the lungs, the blood that's in the placenta. So during labor, uterine contractions force a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more blood from the placenta into the baby over the course of the um, of labor. And by the time, you know, a, a perfectly fine normal birth happens then, most of that placental blood will have been forced from the placenta into the baby, and that's that blood helps the baby um, to inflate its lungs. So it's, it, it serves that purpose right at, right at birth once the baby starts breathing. And that's why the, the timing of the cord clamping is important, because there's, a, there's a, a couple of important things about delayed cord clamping. One is the impact on that transition from you know, helping the baby be a, basically living in a liquid environment to breathing air. And the other is the issue of iron, which we'll get into a little bit further down the road here. But um, um, the uh, so if you if you clamp the cord too soon, you may interfere with the process that needs to happen with the transition. And I think I've wandered off your question now. <laughs> yeah, no, that that does start with answering the question. So the benefits of delayed cord clamping it does have it it can create better transition of breathing for mm -hmm. the baby, right? Yeah, kids with early early cord clamping does put you a little bit more risk of needing oxygen at birth or uh, having a baby who's breathing rapidly at birth, because if you don't get all the blood in there to inflate the lungs, then it just takes longer for the, the baby's body, the newborn's body, to adjust to that. And the other benefit, which is I think the more important of the two, because you know the the breathing problems tend to fix themselves over the first few hours of life, but the impo increasingly important in research studies is the issue of the amount of blood that's in the placenta in mid-pregnancy is is really the equivalent of about a three to four to six month supply of iron for the baby after birth. And so if you're clamping the cord and not allowing that blood to move from the placenta to the baby, then you're shorting them in iron. And that's more and more being shown to be a real critical problem because you need iron for brain growth. And there's probably not, there's probably, a, I don't think there's any time as rapid a, a brain development as there is in the, in the first few months of life. So that's a bigger concern is that you're kind of shorting kids on, on iron uh, by clamping the cord soon. Mm -hmm. And because it's so, I think added to that, it's important to know that breast milk doesn't have much iron. Right. And I think, you know, probably nature assumed you were going to be getting that iron from the blood and the placenta, you know. And so that's why I think there's not as much um, uh, iron in breast milk as need be. The mother needs iron to recover from birth. And so probably... Her iron supplies are being diverted to uh, fix whatever you know injury she's had from birth, and you know so not much is being put into the milk. But again, I think nature assumed you're going to get that iron from the placenta blood. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And so, what are the consequences of iron deficiency in infancy? Well, um, a lot of the research on this has been done by a woman named Betsy Lozoff at the University of Michigan, and now I would emphasize that her studies are not about cord clamping; they're about iron deficiency anemia. And, um, um, but what she found is that kids who, uh, well, in, in the growing brain right at birth, there's two areas that are particularly growing fast and are thus impacted by not having enough iron to make all the connections and uh, uh, you know, the pathways that need to be made. 
One area is called the basal ganglia, the other is called the hippocampus. And those together are involved with a lot of the, the development of decision-making abilities, about memory, impulsivity in terms of behavior and motivation, and, and encoding of memory, so, so remote memory as well as uh, current memory. And so those are the areas that she found when she um, studied kids in Costa Rica. So they started out looking at, at the when they were, I think, toddlers or <clears throat> around one year of age, they found they took a group of kids who were severely iron deficient enough to be anemic and followed them over the years. And they found that age 19, the kids who had been uh, anemic as infants were more likely to have motor problems, balance problems, poor school performance, anxiety, you know, ADHD-like behaviors 19 years out. So, so there's something about if you don't have the iron when those pathways are supposed to be laid down, you may not be able to fix it down the road as well as, as you could have had, had uh, there been enough iron to begin with. But again, to emphasize her studies were not really directly about cord clamping, but it kind of get, they show the importance of iron to brain development. Mm -hmm. And then this new research that you pointed me towards when we were discussing, you know, talking mm. to do the podcast, the, the Swedish, uh, Swedish research that recently mm. came out. Can you speak a little bit about that one? Yeah, and one of the frustrating things about... Um, this whole topic has been sort of the feet dragging by a lot of uh, folks in the obstetric community that they wanted proof that this really made a difference before changing their practice to sit around an extra couple of minutes for the delayed cord clamping. But um, uh, Dr. Ola Anderson, who's a researcher in Sweden and her group, they showed um, four or five years ago that, um, and they, they took very comparable groups of kids and they assigned half of them to get delayed cord clamping, half of them to get early cord clamping. They showed what makes sense is that at four months of age, uh, the babies who had delayed cord clamping had higher levels of body iron than did uh, the kids who had got the early cord clamping. Even so, some people wanted to see, okay, there's more iron, but does it really make a difference? She carried that out to four years of age with those same kids and showed that um, the uh, kids with early cord clamping uh, had more difficulties with fine motor and social emotional type domains of, of, of development than did the kids who had the delayed cord clamping. Now, there were small differences. It was, it was more significant in boys than in girls. But still, it, it showed that yeah, when you have comparable groups of kids and the only difference is how you did the cord clamping, it does make a difference four years down the road and probably beyond that point, too. So those would be two very significant um, negative consequences of the early cord clamping, the iron mm -hmm. deficiency, and then these social skills that had been measured four years out. Mm -hmm. Probably what is is those parts of the brain that are involved with the fine motor and the social domains, um, the connections weren't made properly because of the lack of iron. Because that's when the brain is growing the most and it needs it to grow. Right. And those those areas are, are the ones that are related to the two, you know, the, the basal ganglia and the hippocampus, the two areas that I talked about earlier. So are there any negative consequences to mother or baby with delayed cord clamping? For a mother, there's none at all. You know, it's uh, it's been pretty uh, thoroughly studied. There's been a, at least one Cochrane uh, review done on all the available evidence and showed that there's really nothing there's nothing to recommend against delayed cord clamping in terms of maternal outcomes. In babies, the only thing they've found, and it would make sense that you would find more jaundice in uh, babies who got delayed cord clamping because jaundice comes from broken down red blood cells. And if you're allowing more blood into the baby, it's, it seems more like, you know, it seems to make sense that you would have more uh, more jaundice. However, the studies are controversial because the, the main study that was used to prove that was never published. So the data is referred to a lot, but there's no way for people to really look at it closely. 
And also, it was a small increase in the need for Billy lights for phototherapy for Jonas, but there were no bad outcomes. The kids did fine, and you know, there, were, there was no developmental things. So that's really the only negative they found, and it's a very tentative negative about uh, delayed cord clamping for babies. Otherwise, there's really no difference in outcomes, you know, uh, in terms of APGAR scores and, you know, uh, problems after birth and things like that. So there's really not a downside. Right. So there's only one research that's been done on that. And, and we... Well, the, the, main, the biggest study that's been done mm-hmm. showed a slight increase in hyperbilirubinemia in jaundice. But that study has been questioned quite a bit. And, and, but again, even if that's true and even if that's correct, I think a few more kids needing Billy lights, needing you know, the lights for jaundice treatment, is a decent trade for the effect it's going to have on all kids with that extra iron. So, Oh, uh, sure. And it's something that's very easily treatable. Mm-hmm. Whereas having, you know, slowing down your brain development, that's not something you can just fix with a little light. Yeah, and it, <laughs> it's true. The, the effects of iron deficiency is very much time dependent and age dependent. I mean, if you and I get anemic now, we're going to get cranky and tired and can't think straight for a while. But you take your iron supplement and you get better. Uh, a newborn, you know, the, the, you can you can treat them with iron right away, but if they don't have enough iron either from prenatal stores, the mother's iron stores, or the cord clamping, it's hard to fix that. Even if you're giving the kids iron, that's what uh, Betsy, Dr. Betsy Lozov showed, is that even if you treat the iron uh, deficiency when you find it, a lot of times it's gotten too late to do them any good. Mm-hmm. So, or at least I shouldn't say do any good, but you know, not optimal. Right. Do you know what the statistics are for, regardless of court timing, of court clamping, um, of jaundice in babies? Because if, if we think that, you know, a lot of babies are having, are their cord are being clamped early, um, mm-hmm. but they're still getting jaundice. Yeah, well, well, if you look at jaundice in general, John, bilirubin plays a role in uh, helping you make that transition from uh, fetal life to uh, life outside the womb, in that bilirubin, you know, the chemical that causes jaundice, is a very potent antioxidant. And you have a lot of oxidative stress during birth, all that breath holding and the cords getting compressed. And, you know, it really, uh, so it, it serves a purpose. So if you look at all babies, if you did bilirubin levels on all babies, you find that 100% of them exceed the normal adult uh, levels of jaundice because that's, that's, uh, it's serving a purpose. Um, a small number of those kids, I don't know exactly offhand how many get to the point where you would want to consider phototherapy, but since, you know, what level of jaundice has earned someone phototherapy, you know, Billy lights has changed over the years. It's hard to know exactly what that number is. And even in these studies, different places use different criteria for when they would start the lights on a child. So, but, uh, but so bilirubin serves a purpose when it's extremely high, it can be dangerous to the brain, but that's a rare occurrence for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree with you that it's it, because it's something that is always very closely monitored and the solution is, is or yeah, the fix for it is so simple. It, it outweighs the, in my mind, it also outweighs the timing of the cord clamping. Um, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Mighty Ones, want to know my solution for resetting my nervous system? It's meditation. 
But you might be asking, what is so great about resetting your nervous system? Well, if your nervous system spends more time in high alert and doesn't get back to a baseline often, then your body is in constant state of stress, which is, of course, not healthy. I have quite a bit of sustained stress in my life, and so I find that meditating is a super easy way to make sure I break up those stress signals. You may be thinking, that sounds great, but I have no time to meditate. The good news is that if you have 10 minutes, then you have time to meditate. And it becomes even easier when you use a meditation app like Expectful. I have tried other meditation apps, and I really like how the Expectful app is designed to fulfill your pregnant or new parent needs by focusing on whatever you need at that moment. Whether it's better sleep, connection with baby and partner, embracing your identity, lessening stress, dealing with uncertainty, Expectful makes it super easy for you. Plus, I really love the voice of the person who reads the meditations. Go to expectful.com slash birthful to sign up for their free two-week trial and check it out for yourself. Don't forget to add the slash birthful part so they know who sent you. And we're back. So I've heard some, um, some medical professionals say that in order to do delayed cord clamping, they have to keep the newborn baby lower than the placenta for that blood to transfuse. In other words, you know, moms have to choose between delayed cord clamping or immediate skin to skin because that would bring the baby onto, like, say, their chest, which is higher than the placenta that's still in their bodies. What is the truth to this? Uh, it, it isn't true. You know, that, that has to be done. Dr. Judith Mercer, I think she's in Rhode Island, did a lot of research on this and showed that give or take 10 centimeters above or below the placenta, so above the birth canal, below the birth canal, uh, there's really no difference in the cord in the uh, transfusion that happens from the placenta to the baby. Uh, and to give you an idea, so in our non-metric United States here, 10 centimeters would be where a baby is sitting when it's on its mother's abdomen, skin to skin. So there really is no difference. There's some recommendations that maybe if you're going to do that, you should wait five minutes, you know, just to make sure you get the transfusion done. But there's no harm in doing that, and you really don't have to have the, the baby below the level of the placenta. There's also concerns I hear, and I think it's just uh, concerns by people who just really don't want to do delayed cord clamping, <laughs> that you may have blood running from the baby back into the placenta if you're not careful, if you don't keep the baby down low like that. In order for that to happen, you'd have to have the baby at an elevation of 50 centimeters above the placenta. And to put that in perspective, if you can visualize a woman lying on her back with her knees bent, you know, not, not in stirrups, but her feet on the table and her knees bent, you'd have to have the baby at the level of her kneecaps in order for that to happen. And no one is recommending putting babies up that high. So at the, at the height a baby is at doing skin to skin on a, on a mother lying in, her, in a bed, there's no harm at all with that. And, and the transfusion will happen. Yeah, and even what's the average length of a, of the cord itself? It can't be much more than about fifty centimeters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, I come to think of it, that's true. It'd be kind of hard to get those kids up there. Right? <laughs> You'd be like at the end of the rope, basically. Well, the other reason that the blood's not going to flow back into the to the placenta is because the placenta is getting progressively squeezed and squeezed, and eventually, you know. Uh, ejected from the womb, there's really no room for blood to flow back from the baby to the to the placenta because it's gotten so squished, you know, by the uterine contractions as it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So what about the concept of milking the cord to speed up that process? I've also heard some doctors talk about that. Yeah, uh, umbilical cord milking, that goes way back too, because Aristotle wrote about that. He wrote about a lot of things. But this is a quote from him about uh, milking, because he observed midwives doing this, and he was impressed by how that revived babies. 
And he wrote, it often happens that the child appears to have been born dead when it is merely weak. But experienced midwives have been known to squeeze back the blood into the child's body from the cord, and immediately the child that a moment before was bloodless comes back to life again. So this is a very old um, um, technique. And basically, what you're, if you were going to do it, you would clamp the cord as close to the placenta as you can, so you're trapping a lot of blood in the umbilical cord. And then using your fingers, you would actually kind of milk the blood from the cord down into the baby. That's been studied. It's kind of like an in-betweener between early cord clamping and delayed cord clamping. It's better than... Uh, and early cord clamping, but not as good as if you let delayed cord clamping happen. If there's about 20 mLs or 20 cc's of blood in the cord, usually there's about 90 that are in the in the placenta that are going to work their way through. So, um, so again, if you're in an emergency and, and you have to, to d detach the baby from the placenta, that's at least better than nothing. So, but if you didn't have to do that, and then you didn't have to, you know, you can just place baby on mom's belly and then leave things be. Like, is there anything? This the, the the practice that I was referring to is where doctors were trying to speed up the process so they could, again, thinking that having baby above the placenta would have the blood go back and that and is... then trying to speed it up by helping the, you know, helping the placenta pump along by milking the cord into the, you know, the, the blood into the baby to so they, they could clamp faster. Uh, but again, you have to wonder why do you have to clamp faster anyway? Right. I mean, if you're in a hurry, if there's some emergency going on, yeah, then that that definitely is better than than you know. Because um, I don't know if we're going to talk about. Well, I'll come back to that, but uh, it's it's certainly better than not getting the baby any blood at all. But uh, but you know, the, if you're doing it because you're afraid of putting the baby on the abdomen, there's no reason for that. Or if you're worried about blood flowing backwards into the placenta, there's no reason to worry about that. So I think it would be an unusual circumstance when you have a, a baby who's very sick at birth where you might want to consider that. Mm -hmm. Great. So it would be like a do it quickly to mm -hmm. move it along. Um, and I, so I this made me remind me when I, rem, reminded me when I spoke to Karen Strange about the baby's birth experience. She was talking about actually just don't touch the cord at all and don't even check it to see if it's pulsating. And her thinking behind that was if you did by touching it, it creates a little spasm that actually slows it starts to have it clamp, clamp itself or, or start to slow down that process quicker. Do you know? Anything about that? I don't know anything about that in particular, but the the thing that usually gets well, first of all, you, you know, and you've seen cords, you know, you usually can see whether it's pulsating or not. You don't mm -hmm. But um, but what causes the arteries, which are doing the pulsing in the cord, to close up is actually the level of oxygen that's in the blood going through there. So as the baby starts to breathe oxygen, breathe air, and, and gets a higher level of oxygen in the bloodstream than it did as a fetus, that's the signal to the to the blood vessels to start clamping down. So I'm not. Sure, I don't know for sure if touching would make a difference, but the the main driver to the cord spasming or closing up is actually the oxygen level in the blood. Okay, that would be a possible future study for somebody. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, and in what you were saying, yeah, you can certainly see the cord, and you have in on um, the article you did for Science and, Se and Sensibility. Mm -hmm. um, there's these great pictures of the cord at different stages and i think it was within 15 minutes and you can see the sort of coil of the artery vein um and and that blood pulsing through and how it slowly becomes and you can see the the color of it you know the bluish and you can see how it slowly is less visible and the cord becomes almost like a, a fireman's hose where it's 
without water, right? So flat and limp and silvery and whitish. Taylor yeah. looking, yeah. Yeah, which is very a very powerful image. So I encourage listeners to also go to that. Um, I will post the link on the show notes so you can go and check that image out. Um, another question I had is, so I've had moms that have been told that they can do delayed clamp, cord, uh, they can do delayed cord clamping unless their baby is having a complication. But if, say, baby is having difficulty breathing, wouldn't it be better to suction or resuscitate the baby with the cord still intact, meaning with oxygen-rich blood being transferred from the placenta? Mm-hmm. Well, this is another one of those things where I you know, question how I was brought up medically. Because to us, you know, when I was early in my career, the idea was, well, you get that baby over to your resuscitation table as fast as you can. If you get a sick baby, cut the cord, and then you start to work on getting them breathing. And then one of the things that would follow was that almost inevitably you'd end up giving through the umbilical cord with a catheter, you'd be giving the child uh, either fluids like uh, just some sugar-containing sterile water or a blood transfusion because oftentimes the kids needed a blood transfusion to bump up their blood pressure. And here we've just, you know, so we, we clamped off the cord and stopped the transfusion of the baby's own blood from the placenta and then turn around and have to give them somebody else's blood in the transfusion later on. So that 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 really didn't make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So the trend, and I can understand where it makes people nervous to try to resuscitate a baby while it's still attached to the mother because you're talking about a limited space. Uh, you know, it's, it, all this action would take place more or less between the mom's legs. And the obstetrician still has to take care of whatever's going on with the mother. And, and you know, if you have a, a significant tear or something, and you're trying to get a, a resuscitation group in there. But they've developed some tables that are that are pretty effective in that you can just slide in there and put the baby on. And really what you're working on first with the baby is getting them breathing. You know, So you can be doing that while the cord is still doing its thing, you know, while the, the, the transfusion is coming from the placenta. You can use a bag and mask or put a tube in the windpipe to get the baby breathing which when you get the baby breathing, that opens up their lungs, that gives, that helps the transfusion of blood go right to where it's needed, which is to the lungs. So it really isn't essential that you cut the cord and start doing things right away, because that's very unusual that you have to do that. Um, it, but it is kind of a, an awkward physical layout just because of the number of people that have to be working in that small area. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I, the research is going towards resuscitation with babies still attached. Are there just, any other complications that would require an immediate cord clamping? I'm sure there are, but. Um, I suppose if you had a baby who just had been so depressed prior to birth that, you know, it has like no respirations, no pulse, things like that, you'd want to get moving very quickly because then you'd have to, you might have to give uh, um, medications like adrenaline, epinephrine in the cord or down the ET tube. So I'm assuming, it, you know, a kid who's like life and death, you might, it might make more sense to have a, enough space that people can do all the things they need to do around them. But in terms of, uh, you know, the typical resuscitation, which usually ends up fine, um, you can certainly do that, you know, while you're, while the baby's attached to the mother. So then now it's just a matter of getting those beds to more hospitals or that, that little side bed that yeah, because that's, that's that's more involved than, you know, like with a healthy uh, labor, you just, all you have to do is sit there an extra couple of minutes. Um, this involves training, it involves equipment, it involves people who have not been comfortable doing that sort of thing, learning how to do it. But I think as the evidence piles up how important this is, um, that, you know, you're going to find that the, the tide will turn on that. Mm-hmm. I will look for the article. I know I read a, an article that from the hospital there's one pioneering hospital in the u.s or maybe there's more now but the article talked about one that was doing that and i think it was out your way in california um do you are you familiar with it 
Yeah, I can't place where it is either, but I know, yeah, there's, there are uh, hospitals that have developed their own resuscitation beds. You know, they've kind of built them themselves and uh, are very into this. Uh, it's just, you know, it's like anything in medicine. It takes forever to get, to get people to adopt a new technique that goes against what they were taught in, in, in their training. And it's just a thing. It's just an inertia thing for a lot of physicians, me included. It take, you know, it's taken me a while to adopt things that, that in retrospect, made a lot, made a lot of sense. Well, but it's still progress. One little step at a time. <laughs> progress. So focus more on the on the healthy kids because there's really no reason not to be doing delayed cord clamping in, in healthy kids. There's just no argument against it. Oh, absolutely. And that's still part of the progress, right? Changing that practice mm. of immediate cord clamping to just more of a physiological cord clamping. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, is there any harm in waiting more than three minutes to clamp the cord or five minutes or 15 minutes or 20 minutes? You know, what about if you just wait until that placenta comes out or anything to that? Um, well, it depends. There's no, let's see. If you, if you look at the, the blood flow from the placenta to the baby by Three minutes, most of that is, almost all of that is done. By five minutes, there is actually no more flow. And close to 98% of babies by five minutes of, uh, of age, there is no more flow between the placenta and the baby. Everything is clamped down. So I don't think there's any harm in waiting five, 10, 15 minutes, whatever. I'm not sure what benefit you're going to get from it. But it's certainly not going to benefit you in terms of iron or in terms of making that transition to you know breathing and getting your lungs inflated. So uh, I don't think I don't think there's any harm as long as the baby's being kept warm, you know. So mm-hmm. um, I, gu- I guess I was asking more of that, you know, need to watch the clock. It's like it's been three minutes, not clamp it. It's like, well, five minutes, ten oh, minutes, whatever. No, it, three minutes is you know that's you're, you're trying to stop the the clamp happy people to at least wait three minutes. Uh-huh. So if you want to go beyond three minutes, I don't think it's a big deal. Uh, I don't think it'd be a problem. It's just I, I, the times I've seen people do that, and it's not very common. Oftentimes, you just worry that you want to make sure then for sure that the baby's on the mother's abdomen or the blanket over them so they're staying warm because otherwise they can get cold pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Yep. And mom has that built-in warmer she does. that can really help. And and in some cases, I've even seen have mom with baby on her chest and then bring the light over both of them, mm-hmm. make them all really toasty. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Mom's a pretty good incubator. She's she's made it through nine months of incubating, so she she's she's pretty good at keeping the baby warm after the fact. Yes, course, indeed. What, what limits what you can do is how long the cord is too. Because if yes. your cord is not long enough to reach to the mom's breast, then it's probably more important to get the baby to the breast. Sure, and just keep them warm. Good. Yeah. Um, now, I think this is probably the last question. What about for parents who may want to do some cord blood banking? Mm-hmm. Does that is it an either or? Or can they do both? You can do both. It's it's a little harder to get blood. If you have a full placental transfusion to the baby, it's a little harder to get blood just because there's not as much there. But um, so, I, yeah, there's no reason you couldn't do both. And I think the techniques for extracting blood from the placenta are getting better. So uh, no reason you couldn't. One thing, though, because a lot of times people want to want to bank the cord blood to have available for when the child might, you know, God forbid, end up with leukemia or something later in their stem cells in there. Well, my feeling is it's better to give that baby those stem cells to begin with. <laughs> you know, just let the let the transfusion happen. And if you can get enough blood to bank uh, the cord blood, great. But if you can't, you know, you you've given your baby an awfully good start, which is going through the whole, you know, the the, the whole transfusion. Mm-hmm. And because so what I realized we just went through this whole show and never mentioned how much of that blood is left in the placenta, that it's about a third of the baby's blood volume. 
You mean if you early cord clamp? Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to believe, but it, you know, like a six, seven pound baby, their total blood volume is about 10 ounces. <laughs> it seems like that you need more blood than that, but you don't. Um, of which about 30%, so about three ounces are still in the placenta if you cut the cord right away. And it's amazing that babies can adapt to that, that they don't go into shock because you, you cut the cord that early, but they have a harder time making the transition. But the, yeah, there's about three ounces worth of blood. And in that three ounces of blood, all the red blood cells have iron in them. And that's your, you know, four to six months of iron that you're leaving the placenta if you don't, uh, if you don't let it get out of there. Mm -hmm. And all your stem cells and all that oxygen that or volume that you need to perfuse mm -hmm. those lungs and get that good start. And yeah, if they took a third of our blood, we would be in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> you can't imagine the, the visual usually turns people off. But imagine if you had half of your blood volume in a bag outside your body attached to your belly button. And it doesn't appeal to too many adults to think that way. I <laughs> <So>. wonder why. <laughs> but that's what the fetus is doing. So. Mark, thank you so much. If listeners want to follow you, find out more, your, more about your book, get, read your blog, where can they do all that? Uh, my uh, website is www.marksloanmd.com. And yeah, I'd be happy to just take email too. It's Mark P as in Patrick. So Mark P. Sloan at gmail.com. Wonderful. I also have a blog too. That's right. It's www.marksloanmdblog.com. It's on WordPress. Yes. And I have to ask, like, how many times have you been heard the joke of the, <laughs> <laughs> what was it, the great ana anatomies uh, doctor that was called Mark Sloan? Yeah, McSteamy. Yeah. Well, okay. So um, I, <laughs> I usually start any talks I give. All I have to do is get up there. And the first slide I put up with no comment at all is a picture of McSteamy. And everybody just cracks up. And I just let them get that out of their system. Uh -huh. But actually, he's the second Dr. Mark Sloan on TV. Did you know who the first one was? No idea. I'm shocked. Uh, Dick Van Dyke actually played Dr. Mark Sloan on Diagnosis Murder in the 90s. So for nigh on to a quarter century now, I've been dealing with Dr. Mark Sloan jokes. <laughs> <laughs> so notice I saved it till the very end. <laughs> it was unusually restrained for me. <laughs> Mark, thanks so, so much for being on the show and uh, keep in touch. And thank you, Adrian. It's been a pleasure. Mighty Ones, find the in-depth show notes for this episode at birthful.com, where you can also learn more about me, the show, Patreon member benefits, send me messages, and more. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter as at birthful, so come say hi. And if you're looking to prepare for life with your newborn, then do do yourself a favor and do go to birthfulcourses.com to sign up for my postpartum preparation classes. Do it before baby arrives so you can get postpartum ready. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you, the Birthful Patreon supporters, and by the wonderful people at Simply Breastfeeding and Expectful. The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. Also, the Birthful podcast is part of the Parents on Demand network, a network of podcasts focused on parents. Download the free Parents on Demand app on Apple or Android for easy on-the-go listening. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to a mighty parent as they share their amazing story here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so very much for listening. Hey, mighty one. 
Did you know that if you started listening to one birthful episode per day at the start of your pregnancy, your baby would be about three months old before you got through all of them? That is so much birthful. So to ease us into the summer and to help you catch up on your listening, we're going back to releasing one episode per week instead of two. Now you know. 